Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm your other host, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. Welcome to a very special episode of the Nauticast titled, Chaos is a Ladder. A look back at Game of Thrones Season 3, where the HBO adaptation really cemented itself into the pop culture pantheon. Did you know they made books based on this show? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I heard they got uh, George R. R. Martin to come take a look at the TV scripts and kind of turn it into something workable just to, you know, get out at airports so people can read on a plane. Exactly. With the show characters on the cover. Smart move. Good tie-ins. Mm-hmm. Good, good call, HBO. And our spoiler warning, as always, is we'll be talking about all published books, the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, House of the Dragon, and most of all, Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So, why this episode on Game of Thrones Season 3? Well... The Red Wedding creates a nice breakpoint where we can look back at the TV adaptation, which I think was initially structured through its first three seasons to get to this point specifically. David and Dan wanted to get to the Massacre at the Twins, and we can see the show's production and storytelling changes after season three as well, in part because of how impactful the show's Red Wedding was on pop culture. Which was, in fact, ten years ago this summer, which again makes it a good point to look back on after the show has kind of finished and a new one has begun in House of the Dragon. Thrones was a hit with the critics and audiences early on, but it was never really a for sure thing in terms of, you know, being renewed season to season. But The Red Wedding not only broke the brains of all the people watching, but created enough of a buzz at the water cooler and on Twitter that people had to get in on the show and then it became a done deal the rest of the way through. The whole idea of recording an unsuspecting friend or loved one watching a television show also took off from Game of Thrones Season 3 and The Red Wedding specifically. And I think it's worth noting, at least for the booksickos like us out there, Season 3 is one of the contenders for the show's best season, according to popular consensus, maybe only rivaled by Season 1 for the people who wanted a more museum-style adaptation of George's text. (laughs) Uh, In our theory and discussion section, we'll address that point more head-on. I was glad when you uh, proposed this episode, because as as great as The Red Wedding is, obviously it's also kind of draining, you know, it's probably more for the characters, literally draining for them, but also for us, (laughs) and going right from that, taking a hard pivot into the chapters afterwards... You know, I think maybe we'd be a little a little punch drunk. So taking an episode break was a, was great, and to talk about this specifically, I think was a great call. Because yeah, this is probably looking back, even if you don't think it's the best season of Game of Thrones, I think it is maybe the defining season of Game of Thrones because this was really the gateway drug for getting a lot of people on board. Uh, the ratings weren't their highest in season three, but the huge jump you can see towards the end of season three into season four shows that this was kind of the launching pad. It was a it was. It helped get people on board who wouldn't necessarily watch the, you know, the the show based on kind of its selling points or weren't into weren't into fantasy or weren't attached to anybody in the cast. There'd been a spike in popularity before with Ned Stark's execution because that had the very easy selling point of we killed off the main character. And the Red Wedding also kind of locked in the, the reputation of Thrones, for better or for worse, as the show that shocks you and the show that does crazy shit in the ninth episode. And that's, you know, that's a a pattern you you can become, I think, too self-aware of as a creator, but it definitely established the show's brand and allowed it to spread to a a larger audience. And I think it holds up because the, the ambition is there and the desire to be that show is kind of palpable and tangible. You can feel the excitement of, oh, we're gonna, 
we're gonna we're gonna this it, this is gonna work. We're not gonna get canceled after this season, as they might fear they they were going to at one point. You know, this is it's such an expansive season in terms of the cast, in terms of the setting, and they are working with the material that is kind of the easiest to adapt. <laughs> like no shade on that basis, but early, you know, the first two thirds of a Storm of Swords is not only great stuff; it's very punchy adaptable stuff that is is very well paced and has rising tension and it's not the kind of more interior drama that i love in a feast for crows or dance with dragons great stuff but it's much more difficult to adapt for television uh this is some this along with ned i think is some of the easiest stuff to adapt for tv and they definitely took advantage of that and i also feel and this is just you know subjective obviously but i feel like this season is the influential one in terms of all the shows, the prestige and prestige adjacent shows that have tried to copy Game of Thrones as success. This, this, I feel like this is the season that they're looking at as the template. This and season four, obviously, because uh, that was that was where a lot of people started watching it. This is, I think, what what people are drawing from because the first two seasons, as great as they frequently are, are kind of more modest, and the later seasons, as great as they also still frequently are, are kind of more. Uh, both more overblown and more just difficult to recreate in terms of budget. So when people try to do Thrones, I think season three is what they're trying to do. So it's, you know, if you're going to judge the show looking back on one season, I think this should be the one. Yeah, season three is interesting because it lives at that nexus point between what the show was and what the show would be, be what the show would become. Because season one and two almost feel like a BBC stage play, more so than it feels like big budget television that we now think about it in 2023 in part because of Game of Thrones. Um, and you can see a lot of places where they're obviously not able to go to the full lengths that George is able to in his novel, whether it's with some of the White Walker stuff that has to be kind of more off screen, or even Jamie and Brienne with a bear, which can't be a whole coordinated you know, dance sequence because you're working with a real life Bart the Bear here. Uh, so you can see that it still has to kind of work within the confines of um, you know, a television show at the time, even if it was the most, you know, expensive show at its time, it wasn't what the show would even be two or three years down the line. Yeah, I think that helps it become one of the more popular ones in retrospect, because it's it's got that ambition I talked about, while it seems within its means, it's a kind of, yeah, like a meeting, everything was in its right place before it could, it got bigger sometimes than it could handle, or just bigger than the scenarios they were writing for was worth it. Everything felt scaled really properly and that's uh that's something i also i really value in television specifically because i think scale properly done is is just as good and even better in movies for the most part and that's what i go to movies for a lot of at least at the higher budget level but what i love in television television most is the is a strong sense of structure and and using your resources to their fullest that's what i, I love going back and seeing in a television show is realizing oh you did that with everything you had and you made it seem like you had more money than you had and made it seem bigger than it was. And you, you structured everything to have a payoff with only a handful of characters. Because as, as mind-blowing as The Red Wedding was, it's, it is not uh, on the scale of something like Blackwater to pull off. And, and yet it's even more devastating because they focused it so intensely and because they had the great material to draw from. But you compare that to the, the battle at the end of season four on the wall and how huge that was. It's more modestly scaled, but it's, I think it's even more effective. Yeah, and I think one point we'll return back to is it's a lot of the small moments in this season, and that helps that George has a lot of great small moments in his book, A Storm of Swords, but I think those are the ones that really sing and then really make those big moments pop when we do get them every three or four episodes. Agreed. So before we start our debate about the season, let's give you a synopsis on Game of Thrones Season 3. Three. Three blasts. Three blasts means White Walkers. 
Three Blasts means Game of Thrones Season 3. We pick up with Samwell Tarly, lost amongst the winds of winter as the others attack the fist of the First Men. With no choice left to them, the Night's Watch retreat to Craster's Keep. But death stalks them there, too, as the disgruntled rangers mutiny against Lord Commander Mormont, sending Sam fleeing into the haunted forest with Gilly. Along the way, he kills a White Walker and heads south for the Wall. Also pointed south is Jon Snow, now a turncloak embedded in the army of Mance Raider, king beyond the Wall. His journey will take him up and over the Wall itself, before taking an opportune moment to evade his wildling compatriots and return to Castle Black to raise the alarm. That opportune moment comes at the hands of his half-brother, Brandon Stark, who fully embraces his warg abilities, saving John from certain death at Queen's Crown. Bran's traveling party, which includes his little brother Rickon and their guardians Osha the Wildling and the gentle giant Hodor, enlists the aid of Mira and Jojen Reed, Stark bannermen from the Neck. Jojen leads them to the abandoned Night's Watch castle, the Night Fort, where another chance encounter, this time with Sam and Gilly, allows Bran and company to pass into the wild lands north of the Wall. Bran's home, Winterfell, the heart of the North, lay in ruins. Was it the Ironborn? Or some new foe? Our only hints come in the bowels of the Dreadfort, Castle of House Bolton, where an unnamed man tortures and flays Theon Greyjoy, the now former Prince of Winterfell. Only in the end of the season will the mysterious tormentor reveal himself and his broader role in the Game of Thrones be displayed. While chaos and madness reign in the north, in the south, chaos and madness literally sit the Iron Throne as King Joffrey Baratheon begins to consolidate power under a new Tyrell Lannister hegemon forged by Tywin Lannister, who has supplanted his son Tyrion as Hand of the King. It's Tywin's show now, as he fights wars with weddings and ravens, sealing marriages for his children and grandchildren while trying to bring the boy tyrant to heel. Tyrion Lannister, the former Hand, has fallen quite a ways. He believes his sister Cersei ordered his death upon the Blackwater and moves to prove his case. Meanwhile, he asks his father for honors in light of his heroics on the Blackwater, to that end, he is betrothed to the 14-year-old Sansa Stark and made Master of Coin, neither of which pleases the youngest lion. The marriage of Tyrion and Sansa is not the worst wedding in this season of television, but the closest anyone comes to intimacy is when Tyrion threatens to cut off Joffrey's cock. While Tyrion may have lost his job and title at the Blackwater, Sir Davos Seaworth lost everything, stranded on nondescript rocks in the Bay of Blackwater. His brief seaside vacation is cut short when Salador San drops him off at Dragonstone, which upgrades his lodging to a jail cell following an attempted murder of the Lady Melisandre, who he holds accountable for Stannis Baratheon's defeat at King's Landing. At least he doesn't suffer in solitude, as the Princess Shireen Baratheon takes it upon herself to teach the Onion Knight how to read. Out east, Daenerys Targaryen looks to build an army after learning a sharp lesson at the hands of the Carthine. In Slaver's Bay, in the city of Astapor, she finally finds her soldiers, the formerly enslaved Unsullied, who she buys with the promise of dragons before delivering the slavers to a deserved fiery end. With an army at her back and a strong council of advisors including Jorah Mormont, Barristan Selmy, Grey Worm, Missandei, and soon Dario Naharis, Daenerys marches on the city of Yunkai, where her political ambitions have taken on a new cause celeb, the abolition of slavery. 
And finally, we head back to Westeros, to the Riverlands, where Jaime Lannister and Brienne of Tarth's journey to King's Landing is cut short thanks to capture at the hands of Bolton Bannerman. Or should I say, Jaime's hand is cut short thanks to Bolton's Bannerman lock. Taken back to Harrenhal, Jaime confesses the truth of his Kingslayer origins to Brienne ahead of a failed attempt at dinner with Roose Bolton and a dance in a bear pit. Speaking of Harrenhal, Arya and her friends just busted out of it, only to stumble into the hands of the Brotherhood Without Banners, led by Thoros Amir and Beric Dondarrion. She nearly was free of them too until Sandor Clegane, the Hound, is taken captive and outs her as the daughter of the Lord Eddard Stark, though he says it in less kind words. A trial by combat and holy resurrection later, we find Arya on the road with Clegane as they make their way to the twins. Why the twins? Because that's where the Hound hopes to ransom Arya to her mother and brother, Catelyn Stark, and the King in the North, Robb Stark. After the consolidation of Lannister power, Rob is struggling to keep his campaign together. He's won every battle, but now seems to have lost the war. His castle has been sacked, his own bannermen are revolting, and he lost his key hostage, Jamie, when his mother set him loose in exchange for her daughters. Rob's only choice is to turn to Walder Frey, who he spurned by marrying Talisa Magyar in lieu of one of the Frey daughters. If he could win back the phrase to his cause, Rob could marshal an army to march on Casterly Rock and even the score with the Lannisters. Rob's uncle Edmure is betrothed to Rosalind Frey, and the whole host marches to the twins to seal the nuptial so that Rob can begin his great western campaign. The wine flows red, as Walder Frey promises, and everyone has a raucous time at the wedding, both within the castle and without. But the joy turns to ash in everyone's mouth as the upbeat music gives way to a familiar dirge. And who are you? The proud lord said. A haunting set of strings coupled with Roose Bolton's haunting eyes, which beckoned Catelyn to peep at the chainmail hiding underneath his wedding fit. A rain of crossbow bolts come down on the king in the north, on his men, on his mother Catelyn, as she tries to bargain for her son's life, her son who just watched his wife and unborn son be butchered before his eyes. Walder Frey has no room for such mercies, however, and Lord Bolton steps up to provide the final dagger into the young wolf's heart. Defeated, devastated, Catelyn kills Walder Frey's latest wife before she herself feels the cold cut of steel against her throat. Cut to black, no music. And that is your synopsis for Game of Thrones Season 3, uh, what'd you think of that? Woo! I don't even need to watch it again. <laughs> I just watched it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's such a great mix of the the big devastating events and the kind of the smaller, more more intimate stuff, like with John and Egret or Brienne and Jamie, and then you get the the gut punch of something like like Red Wedding or Astapor. Uh, it's a really good work of compression that they, I think, they did a good job of getting most of a storm of swords done while still leaving some enough business while still leaving enough business for themselves in season four and not every case i think the stuff at the wall suffered a bit in season four because there wasn't really much to do until the battle which they had decided had to be structured towards the end so they had to kind of spin their wheels there a couple other storylines suffered as i'll get into as we go but i think overall i think it's a really good example of, of adaptation of a book into a season of television 
Yeah. And uh, like you've said a couple of times, they just had a really great stretch of material to work with here, but how they kind of spaced it out, they played around with the ordering of some of this stuff. And I think it really played well, like something like a Sansa and Tyrion's wedding was something I thought might be early in the season because it comes kind of relatively soon in A Storm of Swords. It's the beginning of the second act, like we've talked about. But, you know, kind of putting that episode back to back with the Red Wedding episode actually works effectively because it both sets up what kind of weddings look like in a public setting while also kind of just having the nice juxtaposition of, you know, it's very neat to have those two episodes next to each other. And there was some shifting around of material we should talk about it in terms of just adapting A Storm of Swords. Um, some of the stuff from the book was shifted back into season two. I'd say pr uh, predominantly Jamie and Brienne. Um, they kind of get their whole roadshow going uh, halfway through season two because we got to give Nikolai Koster-Waldau, our fourth, <laughs> fourth highest billed actor in the cast, something to do uh, during a book where he's <laughs> not really around for um, and then they had also punted a lot of stuff that should have possibly been in season two, stuff like Ramsey and Reek or the Reed kids from season two into season three. And they have to try to introduce them here, you know, to kind of marginal success, I'd say, J especially I think the Reeds, they literally come out of nowhere. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think it mostly works, but you can see that they're always playing the game. Also, they're punting Oberyn fully to season four, which I think was a good call. Um, allows him to kind of be Ned Stark 2.0 in his own way. Um, but then it just kind of saves all the Dornish politics for uh, season four. And we don't really have to get into it with the limited time we have here. Yeah, agreed across the board. I think it really works with Oberyn because he's his own plot. And he's so detached from the build up to the Red Wedding stuff. So you can kind of shift the tension to him. And yeah, I like the invented Jamie stuff in season two for the most part because he plays it so well. I think, you know, it, it maybe plays a little strangely to not have that kick off season three because George does a, such a good job kicking off Storm of Swords with that. But they still have enough material to work with. You don't you don't feel the the length of it. Yeah, the reeds, the reeds really do just walk out of the woods. And it's, it's fine because they're supposed to be mystic. And that's part of the deal. But it is, I, I, I really like the aspect of their relationship with Bran and the Clash of Kings, where they are also his vassals and come to Winterfell first to kind of make that oath and be part of the Northern Kingdom. That suits Bran's story, and that suits the Reeds as part of the backstory, which the show isn't going to get into heavily, of course, so you don't necessarily need that. But it does, I understand why people weren't super into a lot of Bran stuff on the show, because a lot of stuff that plays more interestingly or with certain shades of gray in the book does become kind of stereotypical on the show like as soon as you see jojen in the show you're like okay you're that guy and then he's 100 that guy until he dies and like you know blood raven is just you took you took one of the greatest actors in world history and gave him barely anything to work with i mean he serves his symbolic purpose but there's you know he's not blood raven and uh yeah ramsey will will get into uh, a little later, but that is, yeah, that is a difficult task that I don't think they managed 100% well. Uh, and yeah, in terms of other characters that are introduced here that weren't introduced as early as they are in the book, same thing goes for Edmure and the Blackfish, which come up here in season three, Catalan's extended family. It doesn't make a great deal of sense if you think about it too long while they're not around earlier, because the reason that they're around early on in the books is because they're the whole impetus for Rob's campaign at the start. Obviously, he wants to uh, save Ned, but in terms of his military direction, where he's going, it's to rescue Edmure uh, and uh, and keep the Tully cause going at River Run. But I think they, they're they both really well cast, and even though their dynamic is a little more kind of harsh and blunt than it actually is in the books, I think they do a great job, and they do feel like they, they feel like people who are related to Catelyn. Like, in the casting among them is also, well, you can, you can feel their... Their dynamics playing off each other well, and I think that they they lead into the the Red Wedding properly. 
Might as well mention some of the other people that are joining the cast here in season three. Um, well, I think uh, Daenerys probably gets the biggest supporting cast boost around her because we see, a, you know, her supporting cast with the Unsullied, with Missandei, uh, Dario Naharis, uh, Barristan Selmy returns after being absent from season two. So he almost feels like he gets to be a new character um, since he, you know, didn't get a whole lot of time himself in season one. Um, so she's um, kind of flanked now with all sorts of new characters. I think uh, the big one in Westeros is maybe Olena Tyrell. Um, mm-hmm. We get her presence. I think that's, you know, a strongly felt presence on the show specifically. Like they realized they had, you know, a bombshell and Dame Diana Rigg <laughs> and just kind of unleashed with her and made sure they put her with scenes with Charles Dance, with Peter Dinklage, just to make sure that, you know, it just it made for good content, you know. Who's to say? Um, we also saw uh, up north. Uh, we got Kieran Hines come in as Mance Raider, uh, the King Beyond the Wall. I think that's just fantastic casting, just by itself. Um, and then also, uh, I can't pronounce Tormund's name. I think Kristoff Hivju or Hivju um, coming in as Tormund. I think he also ended up being very iconic in his role, and I think a lot of people have a fondness for that character and actor in part because of him. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, A Storm of Swords introduces a lot of new characters uh, and not a lot of new settings, which I think made it easier for season three to kind of expand and build on the settings they had to, you know, we see a lot of a lot of parts of King's Landing that we haven't seen before in this season of the show. We're obviously expanding more out east, but even areas we've seen before in Westeros are are getting a a new uh, fresh treatment because we're seeing, you know, new characters at River Run. We get that we go, you know, back to the hellish atmosphere of the twins I think, yeah, the, the Diana Rigg is one of those cases where you have lightning in a bottle and, the, you know, you just want to get out of her way and give her as, as, as many scenes as, as you possibly can. Uh, and, and the Wildlings, it's more you're trying to build a kind of an overall vibe uh, around John. And I think they, they do that very effectively of showing them as being as being, you know, charismatic and being kind of more, you know, rough around the edges than than straight laced, uh, thin lipped Jon Snow. But but like a, a kind of a world he wants to be a part of, and I think yeah, it's uh, casting was one of the, the strongest parts throughout the show, and no exception here. Same mm-hmm. with the Brotherhood, you get you know same thing like you know you want to like these guys and you want Arya to get along with them, that comes through very strongly. Yeah, no, the Brotherhood I think are really impressive. Um, you know, Beric and Thoros, and even the character or actor playing Angai, um, I think all of them do you know really serviceable job. None of them are really big name actors or names I had heard of before, but um, I still kind of picture them now a little bit. Um, I know Richard Dormer is not as fucked up looking as Beric is in my mind, <laughs> as but, with you know, Tyrion. Yeah, they didn't go all the way with that. I mm-hmm. think they did a pretty solid job with them. Uh, I also wanted to talk real quick about just kind of the major changes they made for season three with the plot, because I would say the first three, maybe three and a half seasons are more adhering to the book overall um, than, say, the latter seasons, which, to be fair, a lot of them don't have a book to go on. Uh, But (laughs) like, I think you Mm -hmm. can pretty much track it with how the book is structured. Even this season three, you could say, is halfway through A Storm of Swords or thereabouts. Um, I think the big one is the change with the Brotherhood um, and the fact that they kind of used Gendry to play Edric Storm. So that kind of smashes Melisandre into what is happening with, uh, you know, Arya and the Brotherhood and Gendry. And it does, you know, I think to some degree sell out the Brotherhood character a little bit that they kind of give Gendry up for money. Um, The way the show plays it, you know, they kind of held back on the zealotry with the Brotherhood without banners. You know, um, you know, they kind of invoke the Lord of Light, but it's not as much of a focal point. You're not like in Arya's head sitting there and realizing, you know, what is really happening there. So um, 
it's it's a change they made. It's one of those things that I kind of can see. It kind of makes sense. In it, it kind of works in an adaptation sense, even though if it's not how I would personally adapt it, if I was trying to adapt these books. Yeah, that's a perfect way of putting it. I think it it does make sense because it's. I think it was always going to be hard to pull off the Edric Storm plot. Because I think it works well on the page because it's more because there's such an obsession in those the Davos Stannis stuff about Robert and Renly and how they look and how Stannis was kind of the oddball in that generation. And the show never leaned on that heavily, especially because the guy they cast as Renly didn't really look like Robert. So Mm -hmm. that sense of like the, the perfect Henry Cavill Superman family and then this bald guy like that, that dynamic wasn't really quite there. Uh, and that Andrew Storm is kind of is very deliberately the next part of that plot. Like now we're going to focus that on this little kid. And I think the show already, you know, as as we were saying, a lot of different plots, a lot of different characters uh, in this season. I don't think there was room for us to balance. Oh, Robert had this other bastard that you know whose name you now have to learn. I think that was going to be a heavy sell. I think making it Gendry was in some ways that's an inspired move to keep the spine of that plot with the mm-hmm. cast that you have. And I do think that was smart. And I do think it produced a couple of quality scenes with him and Davos. Uh, I think it it also makes sense, I think, just from a TV structure format to mm-hmm. if you have these two groups that are both worshiping the same God, you know, link them up somehow. <laughs> like George, I think, d- deliberately doesn't do that to show you that Beric and Thoros are fighting a very different kind of war than Stannis and Melisandre. And to get you to think about that, we've talked about that on the on the main cast. But in the show, in the format of the show, I think that does make sense. Like, yeah, of course, make him cross paths so the audience goes, yeah, those are the, that's the same thing. Uh, it, yeah, it does, it does definitely make the Brotherhood look worse than they ever do in the books, uh, specifically that, that it is for money. And also that Melisandre very obviously does not mean the kid well, because look <laughs> at Melisandre. Uh, but <laughs> even without the red eyes, just come on. Uh, but... You know, to be fair, as I said, when Arya ran away from the Brotherhood and got captured by Sandor in the books, that is not one of my favorite plot points because it's just like the third time Arya got frustrated and ran away and just this time Sandor happened to be there. So giving her a really good reason is is more dramatic than that. It's maybe too good a reason. <laughs> uh, it, it reminded me of how um, uh, in, in elsewhere, elsewhere in season three... Uh, in the books when John is joining Mance and Mance is like, so what's your, what's your reason? Why are you here? Uh, John in the book says that it's because, okay, Mance, you were at Winterfell, right? So you saw me get sit at the back of the room as a bastard and that works on Mance. But in the show, Mance didn't do that. So the excuse they came up with is that John wants to join Mance because he's convinced that the wildlings will be better for fighting the White Walkers, which is valid. But again, that's like, oh, that's almost too good a reason. John, <laughs> that's a reason you should actually sell out and join the wildlings, not even a cover story. So while it does... It diminished the Brotherhood a little. I do think that the, the Gendry Endrick thing does make sense because there's only so much room you're going to give the Stannis plot. You already have to introduce Selyse and Shireen, as we'll get into. So having uh, adorable Baratheon number three was was probably was probably not in the cards ever. Uh, another um, pretty significant change was the whole Roz plot that is invented for the show, which, as you mentioned earlier, the Tyrion Sansa wedding is shifted relatively later in the story than it is in the books. And Sansa doesn't have a whole lot to do in the Storm of Swords before that. She has two chapters. One is introducing the rest of the Tyrells, and the next one is Sansa hanging out with those Tyrells. And, you know, the uh, the cousins, the, the Tyrell cousins, the ones that later get arrested, uh, they're not in the show and we're probably never going to be in the show. So having Sansa hang out with them is not going to be a plot point. So you do need to come up with something for Sansa to be doing 
other than just like staring gawk-eyed at Dame Diana Rigg, which we all would do, but you can't just have her do that. So there was, the, and, and also uh, Littlefinger does kind of drop out of the plot for a while in the Storm of Swords, which is deliberate because he's supposed to be cackling and rubbing his hands together just off screen while waiting for Joffrey to die. But they needed to kind of give those characters something to do, so they combined them with the Roz plot of Littlefinger wanting to get Sansa away and Roz getting in the middle of it, then getting killed off during his big pretentious monologue. Uh, it's not my favorite part of the season, only because I think it's one of those, like the plot where uh, Littlefinger dies in season seven, where the end game is so telegraphed, is heavily so heavily telegraphed that I was like, yeah, of course she's going to die because she's not from the books and she's very clearly just a secondary character here. Not one of my favorite parts, but it, it is one of those areas where you do have to come up with some filler because otherwise Sansa has nothing to do. Yeah, that always felt like a tail wagging the dog scenario to me exactly. because it felt like it was trying to cap off uh, Littlefinger Varys uh, show off, um, which they really like to do in those early seasons because it was uh, during, you know, Varys and Littlefinger showing off in front of the Iron Throne like they want to do that Littlefinger launches into his chaos as a ladder uh, speech. And that's all kind of backdropping what happened to Roz being, uh, you know, a crossbow target for Joffrey. Um, so I definitely feel like they were trying to build to something there because for reasons, I don't think Littlefinger and Varys are going to be in a space together. They just kind of like those actors working together. Good um, that point. kind of stood in really for the palace mm -hmm. intrigue um, for a lot of, you know, the first three seasons. So I think they really just kind of, that kind of drove a lot of story choices and they figured, you know, we need to give Sansa something to do. We need to give Aiden Gillen something to do. There's another case where you kind of have um, the cast really kind of, or like because of the cast you've assembled that kind of makes some uh, writing decisions for you in that regard and you know I I'm okay with uh, Littlefinger and Varys kind of circling around each other and saying platitudes at each other <laughs> whose eyes you know with eyes I own and all that kind of good stuff that's actually from season one but um, I can see that you know it, it it's functional it mostly works it doesn't really take me out of it um I kind of like the idea of having like one big monologue and cut, you know, to all these different things happening, you know, moments before we plunge into the weddings that end the season, because that does come at the end of season or episode six or episode seven. Um, so there's a lot of different things going on. You know, John is cresting the wall um, and all sorts of things like that. So um, I, I agree with you, I think, you know, and it is one of the things this show. I would say did not always treat its women characters well. And Roz is definitely like in the middle bucket or like the inner circle of those characters that do, they did not treat well. Yeah. Like just invented with this moment in mind and not really like there were odd moments where she was like almost a Deadwood character. And I was like, this is, this is just like you're in a different show entirely, but yeah, a uh, whole other episode just about that. Just the Roz episode uh, in terms of more kind of minor, more cosmetic changes, there are no bloody mummers. There's no brave companions in the show. So instead, the people who uh, find Jamie and Brienne are just Bolton soldiers working directly for Roos, which I think is fine. It even kind of works to emphasize the danger of the Northmen and how they can't be trusted to run the Riverlands well anyway. And the bloody mummers, while I think they are actually used really well in the books, are, I think, our characters, especially someone like Rorge, who, you know, it just looks different in the show, or Shagwell, like, that is not going to translate visually as anything but a joke. It's the same reason you can't have Patchface in the show. I always say, because imagine the, the, the Dragonstone scenes on the show with all the somberness and the gloom and the the bleakness. There's always a storm going on. And then there's some guy in the corner with bells doing a little, like, you know, <laughs> this would not translate to a show. Uh, same thing with the Mummers. So you have Bolden Soldiers. I think that's fine. 
And then there's the uh, there's the bit that you mentioned in the synopsis where Rob is going after Casterly Rock as his next move when the Red Wedding happens, which I always thought was kind of a weird choice. It's not like a terrible choice, but I, did you ever read anything about that? Was there ever like a behind the scenes thing about that specifically? Because it's so odd because like Rob going trying to go home, I always thought was like such a strong motive to get him stuck with the phrase did they ever it doesn't yeah it doesn't really matter but did did anyone ever talk about that yeah not that i'm aware of um at the time i'm just like it it seems fine um i didn't really think it's a minor detail um, whatever gets them in the room but it it would be funny because i don't know if it was uh season four or season five where it has to be season four where tywin lannister tells cersei that there's no gold left in uh casterly rock (laughs) so it would be kind of funny if rob shows up wins and there's like no gold there he's expecting like the scrooge mcduck fault (laughs) and it's just like a couple cobwebs and a rat running around. It's going to be Zaro Zohan duck sauces. uh, Balt yet again. It's like pottery. It rhymes. So it'll be just like the season two (laughs) ending. Yeah, it does kind of come back in season six when the one asshole, the Glover guy, I think, is refusing at first to go with John and Sansa to fight uh, Ramsay. And the reason he gives is that uh, Rob abandoned them to the Ironborn. Um, which I guess technically, yeah, he did, I guess, because he's going off to fight Casterly Rock. Um, but so that, yeah, that's the only time that even comes back. But yeah, not a, not a mate, not a major thing. Just always an interesting detail that stood out. Yeah. And I think at this point, a lot of what we're seeing is kind of taking elements that are in the story and just kind of trying to condense them, kind of just distill them um, yep. as opposed to kind of wholesale changes with where stories go or like pruning entire storylines out of it. That'll come uh, more into the season five. And when you get into feast dance territory, totally like that's what's going on with the uh, uh, lock who captures Jamie and Brienne. Like it emphasizes that, okay, Roos is the bad guy in this territory, even though he's working for Rob, you can't trust him and he's up to something and you don't have to negotiate the kind of torturous relationships between the cell swords and the feudal lords and the people, you know, you can just simplify things. I think that works well. It only, only becomes a problem when, when Locke sticks around and they have to try to invent <laughs> something for him to do and there's really nothing. So getting into some of the strengths of season three, I think for me, it starts with the fact that uh, these television episodes feel like television episodes in that they're, <laughs> they feel very cohesive and mm-hmm. that they're thematically bundled well. I think a criticism of season two specifically amongst the early seasons was that it felt like you were just kind of jumping from place to place and sometimes you're trying a little too hard to check in with everyone or check in with everyone at a consistent timing. The Blackwater was really the first instance where they really focused in on a set of characters and I think they took a very small lesson from that because in the middle of season three I would say from episodes like two through nine they generally stick to three or four character groups uh, for a given episode and then kind of try to do a good job of mixing it up so you're never too far away with someone from too long but then you're also kind of bundling things that kind of mesh well together or tie into the episode title i think an episode like kiss by fire which is my personal game of thrones episode or favorite game of thrones episode but you know that kiss by fire uh name can apply to the trial by combat with the hound because of the fiery sword and Beric literally kissing his blade to light it up uh john and egret you know and egret is kissed by fire uh jamie's brush with the mad king um davos and his brush with both the lord of light and learning about egon the conqueror as Irene would pronounce it. Um, and then, of course, meeting team uh, Daenerys here with Grey Worm um, and the Unsullied. So there's a lot of ways that works together. I think the Second Sons episode has a lot of self-explanatory. There's a lot of Second Sons in this episode, whether it's Slandor Clegane, Tyrion, uh, and his wedding to Sansa, uh, who's a sec- um, 
kind of a second son. She was the one born after Rob. Um, <laughs> you have the sellsword company with that name. So you see a lot of episodes where they're kind of thinking a little harder about the material, maybe like an eighth grader writing a book report, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And they kind of bumbled, bundled those <laughs> scenes together. So it, it feels really nice. And there's some really nice transitions in between scenes. Um, if, you know, thematically or using stuff like the score or the sound editing, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I agree that this is one of the main reasons season three holds up is, a, is this great editing and a strong story structure where you have the scenes bounce off each other in interesting ways and give you a sense of them being in the same world and working on the same problems. Because I think you made a great point. That is what's lacking in season two. I think the quality in season two is also kind of all over the place. That <laughs> some of the best stuff in the series is there and some of the weakest stuff in the series is there. But it was also difficult to remind yourself that this was all happening in the same place and aimed at similar goals. And you can also see George kind of working to rein that in in A Clash of Kings because not only does he have all these dominoes he set up from the first book, but now he's got to get into Stannis for the first time and he's got to get into the Greyjoys for the first time and Danny is off in a weird new place. So uh, in part, you have the comic kind of binding things together at the start, which the show at least tries to ape. But yeah, that's that's a difficult task. And you can definitely see them them upping their game here and clearly kind of directly trying to address that. And yeah, the like the uh, the great transition from Shireen reading about the Conqueror to Davos and then we cut to Danny's uh, group is like that's just you know perfect way to, to put your episode together. So it. Yeah, it, it feels like you've just you've consumed a whole meal and everything everything was of a piece. And that yeah, there's there's episodes like that scattered throughout the whole run of the show, I think, but they're really concentrated, especially like mid to late season three. And you mentioned, you know, uh Stannis, um, and you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the John So stuff from season two was not always the greatest. Uh I think uh one of the uh, strengths of season three is it took some of those weaker season two storylines, the stuff that was kind of lower quality, and definitely upped their game a, a little bit. Um, I think with more concrete Jon Snow and Egret material, and then adding Tormund and Mance around it, that gave that storyline a little more juice, so that was greatly improved. Um, I think the Stannis stuff was greatly improved. Um, I think just in large part because I think uh, Shireen, the a- actress that plays her, I think Carrie Washington, or Carrie Irving, uh, something like that. I think it's it's Washington. Carrie Carrie Ingram. Carrie Ingram, that's that's it. That's it. Um, She's a wonderful spark on the show. Um, So I think that that just kind of made the scenes way more human. It wasn't all just Stannis and Davos talking to each other, which I can go for a lot of, especially with those actors. But it does help having Selyse around. It does help having Shireen around. And even later when Gendry is around, um, that makes for some great scenes with uh, Liam Cunningham. So um, we see that's greatly improved. And then I think the Rob stuff is kind of also kind of meandering in season two. Um, They obviously made a big change going from Jane to Talisa. But he, like Jamie Lannister, is off page for, you know, all of the Clash of Kings or most of the Clash of Kings. So they had to find stuff for him to do and find stuff to him to do without actually like shooting him winning battles because they had <laughs> budget enough for one battle and that was all Blackwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, that storyline just kind of, you know, kind of ran around in circles or didn't really go anywhere. It's just a lot of scenes of Rob and Talisa talking and Roose Bolton looking really weird at them, uh, which, you know, works <laughs> That's in its own the highlight. way. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, so we see like some of the weaker stuff. Um, and then I think most of all, maybe Daenerys. Um, especially because she has that high point in Astapor. Um, her clash stuff is pretty weak in general uh, outside of the House of the Undying um, and the shows, you know, the House of the Undying was interesting on the show and then the rest of the stuff with Daenerys season two was kind of not. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, 
again, I'll just a lot of the weaker parts are getting their upgrade, and then the stuff that was already kind of cooking along, like Tyrion and King's Landing, or um, I, I guess really what's going on in King's Landing, and then also the Riverlands, because I think Arya and Maisie Williams had just a strong grasp on that role, and then her mm-hmm. stuff with Charles Dance just had everything in the Riverlands kind of humming along. So um, I think that was a big reason that season three just felt good, because it felt like they were actually improving on some of the stuff that was weaknesses in a previous season. Totally. And a lot of that is just having the material to work with that Danny does does that Danny just does have stronger material in Storm of Swords uh, than Clash Kings because there's so much momentum in her Storm of Swords chapters and she's making so many interesting decisions. And a lot of that, I think, is captured effectively in season three. And yeah, you know, I feel for them with Karth because Karth is just the idea of a place more than it is actually a setting where things happen other than the House of the Undying, which is the best thing ever. But uh, and they, you know, I give them credit for trying to do some different things with Danny in Karth. I just don't think any of them really worked other than the one. I do like the little garden party scene they go to where there's all the warlocks just in that one little shot. That's fun. But again, as with the books, Karth is just like some trippy, interesting details. And that's that's pretty much it. And yeah, with John in season two is is some of the most infuriating stuff for me because it's a little dry at first in the books, but when you get to Corrin Halfhand and his his uh, you know special ops team in the Frostfangs, that that shit is awesome. And there's no reason that couldn't be incredible television. And they just kind of just didn't do it and just had just John Chase Egret. <laughs> so yeah, hard not to improve on that. But they definitely they did a great job, I think, capturing the. How John, who John is reasonably bright, but this is a lot for him to deal with, where he's he's trying to be an undercover agent and handle the fact that he's seriously horny for the first time <laughs> in his life. And that's just too much. And it's taxing him. And I think they capture that really well. And I think they, they don't go into as much detail as the books, of course, but they also capture the kind of cultural... Uh, clash. They do have John and Egret talk about how their gen, you know, their their cultures look at gender differently, and kind of as a consequence, look at violence differently. I think that's that's all well handled stuff. I think there's still problems with the Dragonstone storyline that I'll get to in a bit, but I think they definitely upped the game in terms of just having individual scenes that worked on their own merits, regardless of the story structure. Kind of just letting the actors play off each other. Uh, great stuff there. And yeah, with with Rob, yeah, I mean. George said he wanted to give maybe give Rob a POV or have some eyes on him in Clash of Kings if he went back, but this is brutal to say, and I kind of said the opposite of this in our Red Wedding episode. But the idea of Rob is kind of a joke, and uh, there is there is a, like a like oh he's Prince Charming haha aspect to Rob Stark, along with the more tragic stuff. And the more tragic stuff is what we get in Storm of Swords and in season three, and that's very good. But I don't need to see Rob in Clash of Kings because he's just. It's kind of boring that he's just winning everything all the time. I don't need to necessarily see that happen. So they just had to invent stuff. Although I do love Roose Bolton in those scenes. The little bit where he, he talks about, you know, we need to start killing off our hostages and Rob refuses. And then Rob gets told how little food there is. And, and then Roose just says, too many hostages. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know Roose isn't as creepy and covered in leeches and whispering and stuff in the show. But uh, Michael McAlton just has his little moments of little office manager normalcy where he's just... if. If someone had listened to my three-point memo about killing absolutely everybody, we wouldn't be in this position, now would we? Uh, Yeah, all that stuff is great. And I think this is also uh, a season where a lot of the supporting cast really shines through. Um, This is the last season where we'll have both uh, Charles Dance and uh, Jack Gleason playing uh, Tywin Lannister and Joffrey Baratheon, respectively, full-time. They'll both be dead by the end of season four. And the show knew that those two were both special in the roles. They definitely made material around them, just like we talked about with Elena Tyrell, um, including a really great scene with uh, just Joffrey and Charles Dance, uh, where... uh, uh, 
Joffrey is seated on the throne and Charles Dance yeah. just slowly takes one step up at a time as he advises the king. You are um, being counseled at this very moment. Yeah, uh, that is great it is stuff. Really great. Um, we get a full <laughs> season of Marjorie Tyrell, who was introduced but kind of a part time player in season two. Um, she ends up being a lot of fun in the show. Um, I have feelings about Natalie Dormer that <laughs> uh, season three only just uh, sends through the roof. Uh, she plays it really well. Um, we get a little bit, you know, behind the scenes with her because she is a point of view character um, we don't you know see her uh, quite as much as we do in the show which allows her to kind of be the centerpiece of some of the scenes she's in especially in season three um, when she's kind of divorced from the Renly plotline she can bounce off Sansa she can bounce off Olena she can bounce off Cersei um, there's a lot of ways to go with uh, Marjorie Tyrell uh, yeah I think for me also looking back on again like we were talking about some of the weaknesses with season two I think Amelia Clark was having difficulty with some uh, mid-material. And I think this season three, I think, is pretty easily her best work. I think she's... Uh, I love her scenes in Astapor. I, I love the bit where uh, the slave... You know, she's getting into the negotiations with the slavers, and they're getting more and more disgusting with everything they're talking about. And then she just glances up at, like, the, the slave children, like, watching on the roof. And then her glaze just like snaps back down like a snake and she just says, I have dragons. And you see like the little smile like that's it's really well done and frightening in a really appropriate way because you can see her zeroing in on her strategy to wipe these fuckers out. It's great. And uh, obviously her Rambo moment with the fire going on behind her and just but also just how she handles people in the the Yonkai negotiation scenes. I think she's clearly having a lot of fun, which is, you know, for good reason. Those are well-written scenes with a lot of dialogue taken straight from uh, that chapter we covered with her at Yunkai. I think it's her best work in the show, and I think it's it's probably Kit Harrington's too, which is somewhat mm-hmm. grading on a curve, but I think it's it's overall, I think, the best he does. I think he gets a lot of soul out of his interactions, for good reason, uh, with Rose <laughs> Leslie's Egret. Um, and I think you... Uh, I do think what, what Kit Harrington does, I think, very well is, is he plays tired. I think he plays <laughs> someone who's, like, had a really long day and life, and it's just kind of over, which is which is increasingly Jon Snow. Like, in A Dance <laughs> with Dragons especially, that is Jon yeah. Snow. It's just the guy who's, like, running the wall 18 hours a day and just can't sleep anymore and just goes, fuck it. And that, so I think Kit Harrington, Kit Harrington does that very well. I don't think he does angst especially well. But a lot of season three is really interior where he's pretending to feel emotions. And I think he actually pulls that pulls that off well. So I think for the two of them, uh, this is their best. I think season three handles its its big shocking moments really well. I think has a better ratio than most of the other seasons. Not all of them. I, you know, we don't get the fist of the first men, which I mourn because it's my favorite thing ever. Like I said about the Ask of the Undying, everything. <laughs> Tied for my favorite thing ever. Uh, but I get why we don't have it. But the, the ones that make it are so great. The Red Wedding, the uh, Mutiny at Craster's Keep that uh, you're going to talk about later. Uh, Astapor, obviously, all, uh, Jamie losing his hand, all the the big shocking gossipy moments are are not just uh, delivered for maximum impact, but really are done kind of wittily and distinctively and effectively. And the cast is game. Uh, it's it's great. And uh, and uh, coming back to my to my favorite to Davos, to my favorite part of Storm of Swords. Um, uh, they, it, Davos, they take him in a little in a, a subtle but different direction where they, they just make him everyone's stepdad. Davos is, is everyone's cuddly uncle in the show, which I love. I think sometimes people, like, bring that to the books because that is actually not Davos at all in the book. Like, Davos, like, cheerfully abandons his remaining children uh, and is like, he likes Edric Storm fine, but it's not like they hug or anything. Like, Davos is primarily in this in this for his, his tortured, lapsed Catholic relationship to his king. And, uh, what, you know, Davos in the show is great. It fits it suits Liam Cunningham because he's just so cuddly. 
and they emphasize that with uh, with Shireen here, who yeah, it's it's I I'd forgotten you go back Davos and Shireen. I don't think like interact maybe once briefly in the books, but it's such a nice relationship in the show, and it makes sense for those characters that they'd be lonely and reach out to each other. And he does it with Gendry too, so I, I that all that stuff is really f- effective, especially in contrast to Stannis, who you know theoretically loves Shireen, but like isn't comfortable with being around her as a person. So that that contrast is is great. Yeah, uh, maybe we should talk about some of the weaknesses or things we didn't love so much about season three. Um, so I think the maybe obvious place to start is probably the Ramsey uh, Theon stuff, mm-hmm. which I'm not necessarily opposed to them including some of that in there. And I think a lot of that is, again, Alfie Allen has a contract and that requires him to, you know, <laughs> when, Alfie, there. when Theon's not on screen, everyone should be asking, where's, where's Theon? Theon? Um, so, and I do think some of it is played, you know, kind of fairly well. Like, I, I don't mind the thing with the trumpet, uh, with the the horn, because of that goes back to season two and, you know, the horn blower keeping. So some of that is kind of cute. Um, I don't mind seeing some of the sadistic torture. I just think they... They just overplayed their hand a little bit. Like, there's a whole uh, sequence that kind of comes off as torture exposition to me, where Ramsey's just teaching him and Theon's naming houses in the north. Um, and then in the end, Ramsey's just like, well, I was lying about everything. None of the conversation we had mattered. It was just so you could say some shit about northern houses so we can set up the Boltons and the Starks and the Umbers for other plot lines happening in season three. Um, and, you know, some of the... You know, I don't know how good I want to rate David and Dan as storytellers, but some <laughs> of the horror in what happens to Theon is the way we find out about it. It's, you know, not just that we see, you know, him. He doesn't have a memory of himself being castrated, but it's kind of how he thinks about it and how it affects his behaviors around other people um, that really kind of makes that so sickening and that storyline really hit. And just seeing all of that just isn't quite the same. I could go for a little bit of it, but then if the camera cut away and Alfie Allen was screaming, I would be just as fine with it rather than just Ramsey going back to the cutting board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm so glad you said about how George handles it in the books. That structure is, is maybe my favorite decision he makes in the whole story because it's so creepy and effective when you come back to Theon and it's all shaped around this absence because you don't fully get the details and he doesn't really... He barely ever even flashes back to the torture. Like it's just it's just implied and it's just described. And it's even yeah, the castration, like they almost talk about it, but they never really fully do. And, you know, and so then when Ramsey says something like, I'm gonna take another finger, it hits like a slap to the face because they're not really directly talking about it. And it's such a great choice by George because he knows your imagination is gonna be way worse than anything he's gonna do. Because it's all set up. And part of that is this is one of the ripple effects because the show didn't do the Ramsey reek thing in from A Clash of Kings, which I get because it confuses people even from the books. It would probably be hard to pull off. But because of that, like that's that's what gives the energy to the Theon Ramsey stuff in dance is because you already saw this relationship flipped. And now you're seeing the master, uh, you know, subordinate relationship <laughs> taken in a whole new direction. And that charge is so much more interesting than actually watching it happen. And I love George for that. But yeah, none of that was going to work for the show. So given that, I think they did their best. And I think, yeah, some of it early on, I like the game playing aspect of it more. Like when he pretends to let him go and then doesn't. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what Ramsey did with Theon at one point in the books. That works. I love that Ramsey kills his own soldiers in the process. <laughs> that's actually really funny uh, and very much a him thing to do. 
But when it, you know, when it becomes just the Dreadfort cell, then I'm, you know, just everyone, you know, rewatch those episodes with people. Everyone's shoulders slump when it cuts back to just that cell in the Dreadfort because we know what's going to happen. So the, the, yeah, the drama leeches out of it at that point. Yeah, I think because those scenes take entirely place on that one set after like the third or fourth episode, then it's just like we're not even seeing, you know, a new type of sunlight. Um, It (laughs) is just basically the same. Uh, The other one that kind of sticks out for me, and I think this is more what it portends for later seasons, is some of the relationship between uh, Osha and Mira Reed in the Bran Stark storyline. Kind of a different take than the books because of the books. um, Bran separates from Rickon as they leave Winterfell at the end of A Clash of Kings. Um, So Osha is off with Rickon and not really a factor in A Storm of Swords. But the whole gang's here together on the flight north from Winterfell in season three. Um, And because I don't think they really knew what to do with some of Bran's supporting cast. You know, Jojen's going to (laughs) be the guy who kind of ominously says stuff that's going to happen in one or two seasons. But beyond that, um, they just kind of had Osha and Mira be kind of a little too aggressively conflicting with each other. Like, there's no reason that if they're all kind of looking out for the best for Brandon Stark, that they would just be this mean and aggressive to each other. Um, And it's maybe by itself it wouldn't be so bad, but I think this is something that the show would end up leaning on in future seasons. Uh, Like Arya and the Waif, they have a very kind of you know, cooperative relationship as far as we know so far in the books. Um, But they're just kind of put at odds at each other because they're in the same storyline and you need to have conflict in every storyline, I think is kind of Mm -hmm. uh, the driving motivation here. So some of that was, you know, kind of not great. I think uh, Arya and Sansa in season seven is maybe the pinnacle of that kind of thinking that we just kind of have to put these characters in some kind of conflict to justify a resolution to kind of pace out a season of television. Um, So I think that, you know, kind of didn't hit. But at the same time, I think um, the actors playing uh, Osha and Mira Reed, I think like Ellie Redding and Natalie Tina, um, I think they do a fantastic job with the material. I think Osha herself was just a revelation overall, the way uh, the energy that Natalie brought to her on screen. Um, So I like those characters and I like seeing them. I like them talking about Osha's experiences beyond the wall or Mira having to live with Jojen and what that means and how, you know, uh, all that stuff is kind of good. It's just I wish they didn't kind of introduce that unnecessary conflict because it just didn't really feel uh, like core to the storyline or to those characters. It just kind of felt tacked on to add some tension. Yeah, exactly. I I like what you're saying about how I can like imagine those same dynamics coming out in a more interesting way. Because there is something to the idea that Osha would resist going back across the wall, which, yeah, doesn't even isn't even a possibility in the books because she leaves with Rickon right there. And the show, it's just kind of it ends up becoming forced because then they part ways at the wall anyway, which like, yeah, duh. Like, yeah, really, regardless of whether Bran goes beyond the wall, definitely don't bring Rickon beyond the wall. That's a terrible idea. Like any other place to, to Maester Lewin even says it in the books. Like, yeah, don't hide them together because they're, they're, they're all you got left. But uh, yeah, the, it, it felt very much like, yeah, we need we need someone to be shouting in this storyline because we don't really know what to do with it, which and again, to be fair, in terms of adaptation, there aren't that many brand chapters in Storm and Dance. There's not that much to draw from. But it, yeah, it really stood out to me just because even if you're kind of casually watching like, you know, Osha and Mira just don't seem that different. <laughs> like the Cranog men and uh, the Wildlings have kind of a lot in common and a similar relationship to like nature and the children of the forest and they mm-hmm, worship the same mm-hmm. gods and they're both good at hunting. And it's like, this is what is, you are not different people. <laughs> what are you fighting about? That's silly. Like, uh, so I think, yeah, I think that never landed. 
so yeah, in terms of other other stuff that stood out to me is less less than great uh, in, in season three, and some of this is just filtered through the shit I love best in the books, of course. But they did. I think they muddled things a little bit with Sam, which is some of my favorite stuff in the book. Uh, I get why we can't see like a full scale battle on the Fist of the First Men, but no effort to even recreate anything. Like you could have done a cool flashback bit with Sam where he's remembering writing things and hearing things. Seen. Like he doesn't actually see that much in the book on the Fist anyway. There's like one bit where he sees hundreds of them. Other than that, he's mostly just hearing people die and then the bear shows up. You're not going to go full scale. They didn't go full scale with the House of the Undying either, but they did something. So that was that's a little disappointing, especially in terms of how much of a buildup they gave it at the end of season two. In terms of his character, I think uh, I think it's more significant that he ends up just kind of stabbing the White Walker randomly at, at White Tree or not White Tree or just that village <laughs> instead. Like that's given such great buildup. As part of him fleeing from the Fist of the First Men is such a crazy event, so he doesn't quite, I think, as a character, kind of reap the benefits from that that he might have. It's it's cool, but it's just, it ends up being just kind of a thing that happens uh, in terms of the show as a whole. And then in terms of the stuff on Dragonstone with Stannis and Davos and Melisandre, obviously my favorite stuff in Storm of Swords, as I've talked about ad nauseum. But, and there's, like I said, a lot of great scenes here, a lot of great work by the cast, I think. Uh, I think they play off each other really effectively. And I think the set is pretty, you know, the the one, the mostly one room of the painted table. <laughs> but then I even like the jail cells. I like there are, you know, they got the torches and everyone mm-hmm. looks kind of spooky. It's effective. It's simple, but it's effective. Uh, but there's, there's still not much of a structure to what's happening and where it's going and why, which is what I really like in the book is this steadily building revelation of what actually is going to happen with these characters when you get to the end. And so like we get the leeches scene, which is cool, but... One of them happens, Rob Stark, and then immediately we're moving on to let's burn the kid. And it's like, well, then well then, why'd you have three? Why Joffrey ends up dying later than that. And then Valen Greyjoy hilariously ends up outliving Stannis and becoming the last king in his own right, which is just kind of funny on its own, which they just had him say in season six, proving that they kind of knew it was funny. But so like the the kind of the mystery and the portent and the dread that you get from the leeches in the books where two of them happen and then Davos goes, uh-oh, when the third one happens, he might burn the kid. That's gone because it was just one and Stannis goes, well, because that proves the point. Uh, and then more, more I think, uh, more damaging in terms of the story going forward is they build it to the season three climax, logically enough, I guess, of Davos showing Stannis the, the letter from the Night's Watch. And he's freed the kid, Gendry in this case, and he has his get out of jail free card of, I got something for you to do that fits in with her whole crazy thing. Let's go do it. And they have that scene. But the problem is then they can't show up until the end of season four, which is when that stuff's going to happen at the wall. So all of season four with Stannis, Davos, and Melisandre is like, well, we sure are marking time until <laughs> we do the thing we all said we're going to do. And then they show up, and it's still cool when they shows up in the show, but it's nothing like in the books where he hasn't, he's done every, George has done everything but tell you that's going to happen, and then it happens. So still great scenes, but like, again, I don't envy them in terms of adaptation. But once they made that choice, they kind of removed all the tension from, from that part of, of Stannis showing up. Yeah, and I think kind of in those same lines, they kind of do something goofy with Balon Greyjoy and uh, Yara at the end of season three as well. Yes. They yes, show they up do. for just that episode, um, which is funny because they had a shot of Yara walking with these like ironborn pikemen like in every trailer for the season. Like she was going to be a big <laughs> part of it. And She's she only, coming back. She only shows up to give some kind of off-screen narration about how she's going to sail around and uh, raid the Dreadfort, which is its own kind of 
weird storyline halfway through season four that doesn't really work and uh my whole thinking was oh they're sending asha there maybe she'll bump into stannis and then they could kind of kick off the king's prize storyline um and get that kind of like you know she arrives at the wall when stannis shows up she's already a prisoner and you can kind of do stuff because i thought yarrow because of that season three trailer i thought she was going to be a bigger part of the stories um going forward and not just the Ironborn always kind of felt tacked on, maybe outside of Theon Greyjoy. Like, they really brought them in when it kind of felt convenient or they just needed something to do. Yep. Like, I'm not even sure they were committed to Euron Greyjoy at this point. Um, I don't know if they thought they were going to be coming to him in season six uh, when they're finishing season three and writing season four. So, um, so I think, yeah, that's kind of goofy. Um, and I think, yeah, some of the... Some of the choices that don't work so great here are maybe more so because they just don't really pay off that well or they just kind of feel weird with what comes later. I think that, like, I really thought it was kind of soon to me that's like, oh, Stannis might get to the wall by, like, episode five or six. And I, I thinking ahead was like, oh, maybe they'll do the Battle of the Wall in the middle of the season that gives plenty of time for Jon to be elected at the end of the season. Um, but then that gets into where Game of Thrones kind of set its own template for itself. So then the Battle at the Wall pushed to the penultimate episode, which necessarily moved the Jon stuff back a little bit. Um, maybe that wasn't great because they kind of spin their wheels at the Wall too. Feels like the Stannis stuff, the Wall stuff could have all kind of just been better handled if they just... <laughs> put it in the middle of the season and skip some of the invented material they put in between. It's, yeah, it's just very funny when, like, we we get this dramatic stand established Melisandre scene at the end of season three when, you know, Melisandre's like, you have to keep him alive. The Lord of Light wants him. We're going to go north. And, and then we start off in season four and they're just hanging out in the beach burning people. And we're just like, all right. It's just <laughs> it's just a day that ends in Y on Dragonstone. We're just doing the one thing that we do again. Lesson yeah, learned. Yeah, I don't blame Davos at all in the show. He, like... These uh, red priestesses, they're all, they're all a fucking joke. At least in the books, they're like, you, Davos is like, well, she did birth the shadow, baby. I do have to take them seriously at all times. But uh, he, they're just chilling. They're just chilling on. Uh, but uh, we should talk about kind of like the main event. The reason we're kind of doing this episode and why it, we're doing it now is because the red wedding itself on television was... Uh, what is one of the most talked about events ever to happen on television up there with who shot JR or who shot Mr. Burns? I, I don't really know. Um, did someone shoot Tony Soprano? Um, it's kind say? of in, mm-hmm. that, in that same ilk. Um, and I think it's really what shot Game of Thrones into kind of that like permanent pop culture zeitgeist that it's always going to be a part of the conversation. Um, it's kind of the last water cooler show. And I think this is the moment that kind of made it that water cooler show for everybody. Like you said earlier, Ed's, uh, Ned Stark's execution was definitely a big jumping on point for a lot of people. But I think this one specifically was even bigger. And a lot of that is because of the viral content that came out surrounding this um, and just the way it took over social media videos youtube twitter all of it <laughs> yeah it's it was and they knew they had something special in their hands obviously as you said this is the event they wanted to they wanted to film more than any other and part of that is just of course how shocking and violent it is but also part of it is because it uh it's written to make you turn to someone next to you and go holy shit you have to see this you have to read this you have to watch this george knew that when he wrote it too like it's it's designed to to advertise for the rest, and I think the show absolutely captured that. 
I think that even the only criticism I can even make is that I wish it was a bottle episode, which as people have pointed mm-hmm. up before. But, you know, the material they have in other storylines in that episode of The Reigns of Castamere, you do have to put that somewhere. It's already a pretty stacked season. And there's a lot, there is a lot of material at the twins to work with in uh, the books, but they might not have wanted to, to put it all on screen. So that's fine. What's in there? It's, uh, it's just got that great. They really capture that great drunk, hellish atmosphere, I think, from uh, the books where, especially in the lighting, where everything looks just a little too, not only red, but a little too yellow and a little too kind of bronzy orange at certain points. It's like the the walls are bleeding. This is a bad place. This is a bad vibe. That works really well. And I think that that makes it effective, even though you don't have the, the same supporting cast we talked about in our episode on the chapters. You know, we don't, for the most part, they're, they're nameless people getting stabbed, but the, the atmosphere of it is so uh, dreadful on its own. It makes you feel like you're in the room and you're you're about to puke and then you're getting stabbed. Yeah, uh, I think looking back on it, I kind of like the fact that it is kind of an unassuming episode in, in, its, own, in its own way. Like it doesn't announce itself as this episode is a thing in terms of being a battle episode. That is a good um, point. And I mean, I don't want to say that as wholly a positive. I do think like some of the Yunkai action stuff is a little <laughs> bit goofy in that episode. <laughs> Um, I generally like the Queen's Crown, uh, you know, kind of crossover. Uh, it's definitely kind of scaled down, um, not nearly as fun or gnarly as it is in the books, but with the material trying to make an eagle attack John, um, they tried to do all those things the best they could, and I think it mostly worked. I think uh, Bran is really good in that episode, Bran and Osha and Hodor, because they have a really great moment at the end um, after the fight where Osha and Raccoon finally leave, and everyone has a real tear-jerking moment. So it is a really emotionally affecting episode before we even get to the red wedding but then yeah it's just like the insides are basically the lannister colors that reddish uh, Mm -hmm. goldish uh, brown um it does a good job of kind of feeling human we talked about the thickness of the air and describing the episode but like when those doors are closed it just feels kind of hot and hazy inside uh and you know the I don't know. It just feels like a nice tight space with a bunch of named actors. A lot of people we know are like sitting at two or three tables within 10 feet of each other. You get that claustrophobic feeling. And then I think, you know, Michelle Fairley, she had, she is the centerpiece of the scenes uh, to me. Um, And I think she had to carry it. And she did. I think this was her best episode, her best performance, a very thankless role in general. And I think she wasn't given any help in the writing at times. I think her, her character was sometimes undercut by the writing uh but i think she makes this entire set piece work uh from her like kind of relief at first when she's seen rob and talisa kind of just having fun and talking about naming their kid ned she has like a palpable smile on her face um then when the music starts and she has that look up at the you know the stands and sees uh, or he starts hearing the Lannister music down to the moment where Roose Bolton, Roose Bolton giving the best face ever <laughs> in television Absolutely. when he asks Catelyn, like, look at what I got on underneath. Um, and then all throughout, I think she really holds it. And then obviously when she goes mad near the end, um, she plays that all without breaking the kayfabe or feeling like she's going too far with the material, which I don't know if that's possible with what happens with Catelyn Stark. But I, I think she hit the... Pitch perfect throughout for uh, most of the show, but really for this entire season and this scene specifically, she really nailed it. Yeah, the the range of it, like you said, it's just uh, this quiet moment of sweetness, which is not even something she gets in uh, Mm -hmm. the books, of course. So that's that's one moment where the addition of Talisa, I think, is actually positive because it gives Catelyn this little little portrait. And then it's so great when the fray walks between her and them. (laughs) Literally cutting her off to, to close the door. And then, yeah, that shot of her looking up like she, it's just so sad when she when she starts hearing the music play, 
And uh, yeah, as I've said, I, I love the moment with Roos uh, and the armor even more than the equivalent moment in the books. It's very effective in the books, but it is just Frey's son number 10,000. <laughs> and that it's Roos specifically and that he t- basically tells her to do it is so perfect. That he's just, he loves this so much that he's like, you know what, I need this to be participatory theater. I'm going into the <laughs> audience. You need to. And yeah, that is, that is beautiful, beautiful stuff. Obviously, you can't have the uh, the Arya Sandor thing play out quite as as it does in the books. I don't think the fake out death would work, but um, having her witness uh, Grey Wind's death is an especially yeah. brutal uh, uh, idea. Good call. <laughs> really, yeah. really step on our hearts with that one. Yeah, she obviously uh, doesn't play a major part in it. Um, just gives us a peek on the outside, and it's more Sandor kind of realizing what's going on more so than Arya. But I do think her eyes on Grey Wind are kind of the extra gut punch that her taking the axe at the back of the head is kind of meant yeah, to be. Exactly. Um, and I do think it is kind of a palpable relief that Sandor gains. Like, let's let's get the fuck out of here, and just <laughs> yeah. carries off with her. Um, and we we do pick up with them in the season finale. We do actually see them riding out. We do see uh, Rob. Uh, Rob's body with Greywind's head. They actually made that very literal. Um, I think I actually support that decision just because it made for such a chilling image. Um, I think I think it played really well um, to have Arya kind of come to and just realize that she's in hell now as everything's burning around her. I think um, it was really nice uh, the way they did that. Um, and I, you know, I think it kind of makes sense to put Talisa here. Um, again, the show does not have a great track record with, you know, violence with women or how it write, writes its women's character. And the way they kill Talisa is very gendered. She gets stabbed in her pregnant belly, which, you know, by itself, I don't think is the most stabbing thing. It's just because the show specifically has kind of a bad track record with how it writes and kills off women. We talked about Roz from this season already. That this That's kind of why this one sticks out. But um, I can see the allure in the writing room of this is how we heighten the it for our television audience and of course talisa herself and jane westerling as she stands in um the books as of right now is kind of a plot thread that you know has to be addressed one way or another whether this was the most elegant way to do that that's up to you but you know it is something that they had to address one way or another yeah exactly again it feels talisa does feel like a character kind of backwritten from her structural place and her death basically which is just you know a little less interesting than a character who feels like she could have had a life beyond this scene and she's being taken from us which is the that's what really makes it hurt that's what makes it effective that's what makes it hurt when Catalan dies because you can imagine her future because she's such a great character yeah definitely a little lacking there but yeah but i think an undeniably effective uh gut punch literally in the moment um, and it does just kind of hammer home just the uh, the sheer awfulness surrounding Walter Frey's kind of conception of women and, and childbirth and progeny in general, uh, which he then is reemphasized by the choice of having his wife be the one that Catelyn kills, which, as I've said before, I think that change works well. I think there was no way you were going to have uh, Aegon Jingle Bell on screen and having it be Walter's wife just emphasizes just that. I mean, I don't, you know, he doesn't care about anybody, obviously, but that women specifically are fungible tokens to him. And that's how he looks at, at all women. And that's kind of just, you know, so chilling for Catalan specifically, who has always worked so hard to be anything other than that, to just die specifically because of a guy who thinks that way. I think that is that is an extra sting in the tail for her character that I think works well, even even without getting Stoneheart. 
Yeah, and I think the way they do finish off Cat works really well because she does cut the fray wife and then she just kind of uh, standing center screen, kind of losing her mind in her own kind of stoic way. And then at the very last second, I think it's Lothar Frey steps up and cuts her neck, uh, cut to black, and then just no music. Um, they even had sad, mournful tunes when Nettard Stark lost his head in uh, season one that eventually kicked in, but um, they go completely silent for the entire end credits, which I think is also just a lot of good choices that are kind of compounding on themselves. And I think that's what makes it such a memorable scene. And it took off not just because of the shock, but because it felt satisfying in the way that, you know, those early seasons of Game of Thrones really did feel satisfying. So uh, let's talk about some highlights. And looking at my notes here, I think I basically mentioned the Jamie Brienne bathtub scene in like eight different ways. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone has any, you know, ignorance as to how I feel about that, especially after we did Jamie Five just a couple months back. Hell yeah. um, I do want to once again highlight uh, Danny at Astapor. Um, that entire final scene is incredible where she actually lights up the slavers and wins the Unsullied to her side. Um, another smart adaptation choice was the fact that they had, uh, you did not, the audience did not know Daenerys spoke Valyrian. Um, so when she starts speaking it, that really kind of kicks in. Um, it was like how you were describing uh, comedy is when the audience figures out the punchline right when. Yeah. Uh, th- this is kind of like, oh shit. Yes, like you're just exactly. kind of, everything's clicking into place at once. And I think just all of that, those, that was a climax of episode four. Um, Daenerys is in three of the first four episodes and usually just one big chunk of a scene at a time. And that was really Game of Thrones writing her character effectively that they were able to build to this big climax um, with just, you know, two scenes ahead of it. But we really got a feel for the slavers. We got a feel for where Daenerys was at this point. Um, so I think that worked uh, astoundingly well. And of course, they were working with a budget. So you don't have Drogon just flying around, lighting everyone on fire very easily. They use a lot of fire in the background they cut to the unsullied you know about eight or 12 of them in a row just really effective uh filmmaking storytelling with the visuals um so that when the dust finally did settle and jorah mormont walked off to her you really did feel like a big victory was won here yeah that's it's really yeah effective in terms of the resources they were able to bring to bear and make it look bigger than it actually was and that's that's some of the stuff i love best in television no doubt about how well they did with with jamie and brienne again that's just you know, really strong material to work with, a lot of great dialogue, uh, perfect uh, acting showcase. And I think they, they got across the, the core of the relationship really well, even though I, I think Brienne on the show is a, a different character, I think, on the whole than Brienne in the books. I think she's a little, she's she's uh, older and she's a little less naive, I think, at many times. But I think they, Jamie and Brienne still have that kind of mutual dislike of vulnerability that forces them to be vulnerable with each other and i think it's that's a great uh back and forth that i think anyone watching can grab onto and i think they effectively show how that dynamic changes kind of changes and kind of doesn't as their situation gets unimaginably comically horrible around them how they start talking to each other a little more seriously but not entirely i think yeah they do a great job of that some of my favorite uh, highlights uh, in the season uh olena's intro I think was just was just uh, note perfect. I think they she did such a great mm-hmm. job of capturing just specifically how exhausting Elena finds everybody who's just not not quite as quick and not quite as funny. And it's just even within her own family, she's just like, oh, this is I need someone who can I talk to who gets me. 
Uh, I love that little scene also later with, with her and Tyrion when she just calls him a browbeaten bookkeeper. Because obviously Tyrion's uh, story going forward is, is a lot of people hating him for things, some things he has done and many things he hasn't. And I love I love inventing a scene of Elena looking at him and going, you're not actually... <laughs> I was expecting a supervillain. It's the same thing Oberyn says when he sees and he talks about you know meeting Tyrion as a baby. He says, you were supposed to be a supervillain and you were just a baby. And Elena goes up to him and she's like, oh, you just, you just run the books? That's... <laughs> Again, they nailed the casting there, but I think they they gave her a lot to do and fit within the the existing characters in King's Landing really well. Uh, one another uh, invented scene, another invented scene I really like from season three is Paul K as Thoros and his little his speech to to Melisandre that only comes about because they invented that storyline we talked about with Melisandre buying Gendry off them. And I love his speech about about Beric about you know kind of expanding on what he said in the books uh, about bringing uh, Beric back the first time or what Beric really <laughs> said about it. And Thoros just talking about, I love that line of, you know, I didn't really believe, but they were, they was, those were the words, only the words I knew, and he was my friend. And that gets across that kind of that weary battle buddy aspect to their relationship where they've just gone into the trenches together and they still love each other, but there's there's something kind of profoundly broken in how they relate to each other, given what's happening to Beric. And uh, I, you know, the, uh, show, the show does not go as much into that emotionally, especially with Beric, as the books do. And yeah, their ideology is not quite the same, but that that moment I think captures it really well. Yeah, another one that really hits for me is Tyrion and Sansa's wedding, um, because it almost feels like a dry run for the Purple Wedding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because we really assemble a lot of the cast here in King's Landing. We have all of the Lannisters. Well, Jamie's still out, but almost there. Uh, Joffrey can fill in in his place. Uh, we have all the Tyrells, um, and so we kind of have all of the Court of King's Landing. Uh, Sansa's there in a capacity with Shay, uh, so it's just kind of the you get to be in one of those situations where the camera really can kind of turn in any direction and there'll be one or two important characters that we kind of see what they're talking about. I love Loras Tyrell trying to uh, talk to his betrothed Cersei <laughs> Lannister. Goes so and just well. like goes up as like, my dad once said, and then Cersei just rolls her eyes like only Lena Headey can do. It's like, no one gives a shit what your dumbass father had to say or whatever. <laughs> no one listens to Mace um, Tyrell. And it's all great. Uh, Peter Dinklage plays like ridiculously drunk very well. Um, and he really ups his game for this one. And it does a good way of feeding the tension because Jack Gleason is just being menacing as Joffrey. He's threatening Sansa. Um, and then he's obviously ready to, you know, punish Tyrion or at least, you know, socially just make fun of him in front of everyone. And then Tyrion turns it back on Joffrey, um, sticks the knife into the table. And then it all of a sudden becomes like, shit, you know, Joffrey can order Tyrion's death here. And that would totally make sense. Um, so it's like going from this complete, complete farce into something like deathly serious really quickly. Um, so I really just liked how that scene played. And it really does feel like a stepping stone to something like the Purple Wedding, which is a well-executed wedding as well um, but I really feel like they kind of got a vibe for how to bounce between characters here in this scene Dinklage's line deliveries throughout uh, the whole show obviously but especially this season I think were definitely a highlight for me yeah he plays the, he plays in, you know, threatening Joffrey so well in that scene uh, where he's you know he's trying to be menacing but he's also just so clearly about to fall over whenever he's talking to Varys or whenever he's talking to Bronn uh, he's just he's he's not quite as damaged as he is in Storm of Swords after the Blackwater, but he's still capturing that uh that world weariness really well, uh, especially in that that scene, the great adaptation of the scene with him and uh, Cersei and Tywin, where he uh, where Tywin tells Tyrion he's going to be betrothed. They tells him that both are going to be betrothed, 
Great scene in the books, but it's even more dramatic and kind of condensed in the show because they kind of cut through a lot of the specific politics of it and break it down just in terms of the character dynamics. And I love how smug she is at the start of the scene, just starting because she knows he's going to be betrothed and he's just like, stop looking at me like that. That's the yeah, great, great stuff you see with something <laughs> like Succession too, where adult siblings can turn each other into children pretty much instantly. Uh, I always love that stuff with the Lannisters and then how Cersei is crushed by the reversal of she's going to be forced to get married too. Mm -hmm. And then just that kind of like that look she gives him at the very end of that scene, the very end of the episode, I think, where it's like, it's like half apologetic and half still contemptuous where she's like kind of acknowledging they're in the same place, but still, Mm -hmm. yeah, I hate you. Uh, So that's, that's perfect stuff for the, the Lannisters. Yeah, that's one of my favorite episode endings. Um, it's the ending of episode five, Kiss by Fire. Um, and I remember uh, Alan Seppenwall was reviewing the show at the time, and he talked about how that scene almost feels just as satisfying as the Sack of Astapor, which was the episode ending before, because just of how well these characters are both already defined. But then in that moment, yeah, Cersei is just fantastic. Um, it just the way that she's ready to hold this over Tyrion's head, and then all of a sudden the sword of Damocles is above her head. She's like, no, not again, Um, because she's already been through this. And to be fair, you know, Tyrion's also like, I was wed, Um, you know, something that they'd forget by the time season four (laughs) comes around. One last time. Mm -hmm. But I think that's when I talk about how they clearly kind of had a plan for the first three seasons. Um, It really does feel like, because Taisha is kind of mentioned throughout. um, Varys potentially touching little boys is kind of mentioned in the first, uh, you know, two to three seasons. And then starting with season four, all of those stuff kind of gets dropped. It kind of feels like they now had to plot out the rest of the show after they got to the Red Wedding. (laughs) Um, Exactly. And then um, there's also just a lot of little things I love. Like, I don't want to talk about full scenes, but like during the mutiny at Craster's Keep, um, which I think is probably the best of the Sam material in the season. um, I love how in the soundtrack or the score, when uh, Lord Commander Mormont is stabbed, um, they play a horn like the Night's Watch horn. They blow it, I think, twice for Wildlings or something like that, um, just to kind of... Uh, just a great, you know, audio flourish to kind of highlight the what's actually happening here. Um, and it really just kind of set the scene for the madness that was going to happen uh, up at Craster's. Um, and as much as I bagged on Mira and Osha, um, they're what, they did have a, like a great exchange about, you know, the, the boys they help um, because, you know, they're kind of caretakers for, you know, Bran and for Jojen and even Hodor to an extent. And, you know, uh, Mira has this great line. Uh, Some people will always need help. That doesn't mean they aren't worth helping. Um, that's a line I've thought about a lot that, you know, we could all probably do more to help each other um, at all times. Um, and just because th- people need help doesn't mean anything for them. You know, they're still deserving of help and love and all that. So um, that line has really stuck with me uh, through the years. Yeah, that's great. I love that. That's probably definitely my favorite part of that storyline in season three. That stands out. Other little bits I liked, I like uh, Egret explicitly shooting John, whereas in you know in the books it's like it might have been, uh, maybe the, maybe that's not her arrow, but in the books no, Egret just sits stands there and shoots John repeatedly without killing him. Uh, really well acted, same between both of them, but also just very funny to watch her uh, just not quite kill him. That's just great shit. And uh, I really like the scene with the execution of Rickard Karstark that we get mm-hmm, in season mm-hmm. three of the show. That's one I think that really captures the mood and the atmosphere of Catalan Chapters and Storm really well, where it's always raining and everyone's always miserable and depressed. I think that that and that elevates uh, Rob in the show because I think Richard Madden. I think he's a good actor, but 
he's one of those actors where I think he's he's so handsome it kind of plays against him as an actor sometimes because he, he mm-hmm. just he looks just kind of adorable like he just you imagine a doll of him on a shelf uh, and th- that's one of the moments where he gets some some gravitas uh, and he, to be fair I think he does uh, uh, in many scenes uh, especially early on but I think he he really nails that really well uh, in terms of uh, a line delivery is not nearly as as, as uh, emotional and meaningful as yours but one I, I do love from Stannis when Davos gets back to Dragonstone and Stannis just turns and sees Davos and wrinkles his brow like, well, that doesn't compute. <laughs> and he just says, heard you were dead. And that's, you know, not at all like what happens when they reunite in the books, which we covered, but it is just really funny. That's just a punchline after Davos has, you know, lost his son and burnt on the rock and struggled to get back here with doubt and fear and freedom. And Stannis is just like, oh, oh, I took you off the org chart. What are you doing here? That is really funny in a low-key kind of way that fits the character. And uh, the other, like I said, you can't have patch face or anything. Any, any of the weirder flourishes of the, the Dragonstone stuff aren't going to make the cut. But I do like I do like the one they added. I know not everybody does, but I do love Selyse's Museum of Stillborn Babies. That's just a wonderful little touch that does fit. That does fit the overall atmosphere of like Stannis and Selyse have just been with each other and no one else for kind of too long now and are just kind of driving each other slowly crazy. It does it does fit that and she sells it in that moment. And it does does also make you kind of understand why Stannis never goes home. It's like, ah, okay, that's a lot to deal with. Yeah, no, I really loved uh, this part of Stephen Delane's performance. It's just uh, like when, you know, the sea returns the Onion Knight to him, he's just kind of sitting with his back to Davos. Even when he visits Davos in the jail cell, it's almost like he's directing his dialogue at the bars, at the ceiling. He's just like, <laughs> Absolutely. yeah, so this, this is what a prison looks like. Like he expects Davos to respond, but it's almost like he's not even talking to him. Um, but in a way, it's still kind of like, creates a sense of rapport and a real relationship between these uh, two old men that I really love. And yeah, I think that uh, execution of Richard Karstark is fantastic. They even pull in the first version of the Ironborn theme yes. that played from uh, Theon's uh, beheading of uh, Sir Roderick in season two, uh, and which makes for a great parallel, especially because, you know, while Rob is supposedly at the top of his powers, he's king of the world, you know, king of the north, whatever. <laughs> uh, Theon's like, you know, being tortured in the bottom of the Dreadfort. Um, so kind of linking those two characters and, you know, what happens to them. Uh you know, I think that's all good stuff. I think that's really great. And then while we're talking about swords, I just think there are a lot of satisfying sword fights in the season. Um, they're not quite as big or epic as, say, uh, Brienne and the Hound at the end of season four. But Jamie and Brienne fighting on that bridge before Locke uh, mm-hmm. comes and intervenes, I think is a really good, like, very character-driven kind of fight. You see, like, Jamie be refreshed just to have a sword in his hand. He's kind of spinning it around and smiling at it. It's like, yes, this is what it means to be alive. Um, he's having a little fun with Brienne, and then it becomes very clear that Brienne is going to beat the shit out of him. Um, near the end of it, Brienne is just one-handed, like, parrying every of Jamie's blows and just walking towards <laughs> him completely confident, and he's staggering backwards um, right before Locke comes. I think it's a very effective way of kind of showing who they are, and it really does kind of kind of kick off their relationship. They'd been together for about an episode and a half at that point, but I think their relationship and their rapport on screen really takes off from that. And then the other big sword fight is Barrick versus the Hound with the flaming sword, which I think is just 
kind of epic filmmaking for television because we're still working with that kind of smaller television scale at this point. But they used the small cave setting they had. They used a lot of natural light, you know, the fire in the middle on top of the flaming sword and some people holding torches. And they choreographed a nice little fight in a very small space again a lot of that character work with the hound getting super mad when his shield's on fire when he steps into the fire um he gets that fear and that rage across very well uh through the entire battle sequence so um some really sharp tight choreography for some kind of unheralded action sequences in season three yeah i like comparing those two is smart because they they show how the people making them understand the kind of different functions of them because the Jamie Brienne one is got to be laser focused on character because that's what's gonna survive the kind of the sharp the sharp cut literally in their story when they get captured. Now that relationship changes or goes through a goes through a gauntlet, so setting it up really well in that sword fight. It's also what George does uh, in the books, and then with with Beric and Sandor, it's great because those are two characters who don't really actually have anything to do with one another, uh, but it's what they're fighting over is more kind of symbolic or even abstract and you know something to do with sandor's soul in the presence of a god so that kind of more epic approach to it is uh, is perfect and yeah really really kind of deft filmmaking on a on a scale that's uh, suitable but it makes makes it feel again like if you come back to bigger than it is is kind of the the motif for a lot of the best stuff in season three so i think that's a good transition into our discussion for today which is is game of thrones season three the best season of game of thrones or hell, even House of the Dragon, if you really want to throw out a hot take for us. So uh, why don't you go first? Do you think Game of Thrones Season 3 is the best season of Game of Thrones? Probably, I would say so. I still have a soft spot for Season 1 because I love... Uh, it just it's kind of, That's mostly nostalgia, if I'm being honest. But I think they made a lot of great decisions with what they were working with there as well. And I really like the cast. But I think this, as we've been saying, I think this feels like a great balancing act relative to the seasons around it. That there was, they had more money and also stronger material to work with than at least the previous season. And it's not as, it's not as bloated or kind of scattershot as, as some of the later seasons get. And this is, it really feels like, uh, like you're saying, just really well-crafted television episodes as episodes. Not trying to be movies, not trying to be kind of scattershot check-ins, although that still happens from time to time. Mm-hmm. This is, this is television as a medium doing what it does best i think it's it's the most consistent which is also i think what i look for in in tv at its best is being able to do to string bulletproof episodes together it's what we both love about the simpsons in part it's just there's Mm -hmm. those few seasons where they could just do like half a dozen of the most ridiculous funny things you've ever seen in a row and it's as great as the standout episode like the reigns of castamere or kissed by fire is it's just there aren't even more impressive is that there just aren't any weak ones really and that's uh reminds me of uh the quote from uh, the director howard hawks who directed a lot of great movies, but is also just very kind of workmanlike and unpretentious. And someone asked him once, an interviewer asked him, you know, what what really defines a great movie in your eyes? And you're, you know, you're waiting for him to say, well, you find the soul and the essence of the material and you work with the people you know best. And Howard Hawks just said, three good scenes and no bad ones. And that's what I think about <laughs> with season three of Game of Thrones. Three good scenes and no bad ones. That's the mantra for every episode. Yeah, no, I just completely agree with that. Uh, I think a lot of that scattershot storytelling happens in the premiere and the finale of all seasons, including Game of Thrones season three. They just kind of want to set up and close off as many plot holes as they or plot threads as they can. Um, But then, yeah, honestly, season or episodes two through nine of season three might be the best eight eight episode stretch of material in the entire show i think they're smaller chunks i think like episodes three four and five are really strong for me um that's the walk of punishment that's jamie losing his hand the next episode is the sack of asapor and the uh 
mutiny at Craster's Keep, and then uh, Kiss by Fire is the bathtub, is the trial by combat, is the cave sex. Um, we're all here for the cave sex. So. <laughs> uh, but I think, yeah, like we probably just said it a million times now, the episodes are coherently written. Um, they do the best job of adapting the material. That is probably the best material to adapt. Um, from my own personal biases, this stretch of material is the Jamie Lannister stretch of material. It has a lot of his high points, his bathtub, his scene, his fight with Bre- or the bear, um, dinner with Roos, all that stuff was captured. I think this is Nikolai Coster Waldau's best season yeah. or best performance uh, through the series. Um, and you already mentioned Amelia and Kit Harrington's best season. So we and this is still when Peter Dinklage I think was fully invested in this role. So we really have a lot of the. You know, the top cast at the top of its game, probably giving some of their best uh, performances. But then what really kind of cinches the deal for me is that secondary and tertiary cast. Um, that is the Beric Dondarians. Um, we didn't talk much about the Blackfish, but I think uh, Clive Russell or whatever the actor's name is. You know, he just he was the Blackfish for as long as we needed him to be. Um, he was great. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I love Tobias Menzies. I wish overall they wrote Edmir a little bit differently, but um, I can totally see him being Edmir Tully. Um, Michael Mc- McElhatton as Roose Bolton, I think, is just incredible, incredible uh, stuff. I kind of wish he got a lot more material in future seasons as opposed to giving a lot of that to Ramsey. Um, Olena Tyrell, we talked about. Uh, Charles Dance, Jack Leeson. Um, I just think up and down, I think the cast was just so solid. And it's really, I think they were the strength of the show overall. And I think they are the reason that I would say season three was the best season for me. Fucking nailed it. So I think that is going to wrap us up for our discussion of Season 3 of Game of Thrones. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where patrons get benefits including exclusive episodes, early access, and more. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or Blue Sky. And I'm Manu at Manuclear Bob, and I just want to say thank you for putting up with me doing the intro and recap this episode. I'm putting up with hardly. Gonna make you do every synopsis from now on. No, just the- no, please don't. <laughs> it's so much work. Just, just the, just the Jamie ones, and that's only if I'm nice. That's only if I deserve it. So my, uh, our, my latest uh, patron-only episode on a Star Wars is out for all of our five dollar and above patrons, covering the the intro to Luke Skywalker, everyone's uh, favorite whiny brat. My next uh, Lord of the Rings episode for all of our five dollar and above patrons is going to be coming out next week. I'm going to be covering Book Six, Chapter Six, Many Partings, in which the the hobbits begin the long, slow, gradual journey back to the Shire. And then next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, we're going to be coming back with A Storm of Swords, Tyrion Six, in which Tyrion and Sansa suffer through their fake marriage, only to learn how bad a wedding can really get. Well, if this makes you feel better, Joffrey Baratheon is having a great time. He's having the best day of his life. Good for him. <laughs> he deserves Did it. He... Just some mischief with a cat. You know, who knows? Just, I just, I'll just, i talk about this in the main episode, but I love that Cersei calls that mischief with a cat, and then later Stannis tells us what it is, which is that Joffrey cut a cat open to get like the baby fetuses out. And even Stannis says, the poor thing, which if you have Stannis showing, you know, pity for an animal, <laughs> that means you messed up. So that is, that is, it's a small detail, but that is hysterical. I love that that's what Cersei calls a some mischief with a cat. Damn. So uh, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time for Storm of Swords, Tyrion 6.